Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Scripture has a lot to say about the earth and about how humans inhabit it, from a garden paradise to the wilderness, to farms, cities, and households. It also has a lot to say about human responsibility, of course. What does it have to say to us today in unprecedented ecological crisis? Now, as Christians, we're supposed to take Jesus' words seriously, right? When he says, peace I leave with you, my own peace I give to you, we are not supposed to live in fear, in panic. But we have to also take seriously the judgment of the Lord in the book of Jeremiah when he says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So how do we look realistically, yet biblically, at things like climate change, big agriculture, and the shifts technology has made in our ability to live at a sustainable pace? Is there room for hope that's not taken lightly? What can we see exactly when we start with scripture. Dr. Ellen Davis joins us today, and she is well known to many of us in the Episcopal and Anglican world and beyond. She is Amos Reagan Carnes, Distinguished Professor of Bible and Practical Theology at Duke Divinity School. She is the author of several books and many articles. Her books include Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, An Agrarian Reading of the Bible, and Opening Israel's Scriptures. She intersects deeply with the work of theologians such as Wendell Berry and Norman Wiersba. Episcopal priest Father Will Brown speaks with her here about issues surrounding ecological crisis and Christian hope. They talk about prayer, work, computers, buying bananas, solar panels, and even the revival of middle school home economics, all through the lens of the Bible. It is a rich conversation. We hope you enjoy. Thank you. 
thank you, Dr. Davis, for agreeing to do this, uh, have this conversation. So first, just by way of further introduction and background, I'm wondering if you might tell me a little bit about how you became interested in ecology. This is a sort of a three-part question, how you became interested in ecological things and how you became interested in scripture, and then how you how those two things came together. I grew up largely outdoors. I grew up on an island in the San Francisco Bay, an exceptionally beautiful place that at that time was sort of half wild. It's called Belvedere. Um, Belvedere Island fostered what I would now call my affection for place. And it was a real place. It wasn't just a, a freeway exit. It fostered my love of beauty. It fed my imagination. It kept me, as I said, outdoors, um, walking and looking every day. So I developed certain sensitivities from my early childhood on. And then when I was 18, I went to Jerusalem. Well, I went to Israel, living first in the Negev uh, and then in the desert in the south and then later in Jerusalem. I was a student. Every day I walked for miles, part of it in a landscape that had not changed in millennia. And so both of those things sensitized me to landscape. Both California and Israel are beautiful places and fragile places. And I became aware fairly early in my life that the wildness of both of them was disappearing. And that awareness sort of reached a crisis point when I was about 40. I remember I was living in New Haven at the time a highly urbanized place. And I had just been to California visiting with a friend in a place in the wine country, a place I had not been for some time. And I saw a highway running through what I remembered as a farmhouse and its immediate yard. And that was an image that kind of burned itself into my awareness. And I thought about California, I thought about Israel, and realized that I have some awareness of what Israel at least was like over four millennia. And I realized that we didn't have, this trajectory was not sustainable. We didn't have four millennia ahead of us on this path. And I came back to New Haven where I was teaching at Yale Divinity School and decided I was going to teach a class on biblical ecology. I didn't know what that meant, but I was going to figure it out and do it. And that was the beginning of about 20 years of teaching and eventually writing on um, the subject of the Bible and land. Fairly early in, I realized that the place to bring the Bible into conversation with a contemporary ecological reference was to focus on agriculture because Almost all Israelites were small farmers. So that's, it's a large nutshell, but that's my history. <laughs> that's a beautiful history. And California is a beautiful place. Having spent uh, 12 years in Texas, I sometimes wondered why settlers didn't just keep going west and they could have gotten to a much more pleasant land. Well, a lot of them did. <laughs> that's true. Good. Fair point. Fair point. 
It seems to me uh, that in Scripture, the wilderness is primarily kind of regarded as a negative place with demons and bears and lions and so forth, and that the picture of paradise in Scripture beginning in Genesis is a cultivated place, a garden, a farm, or maybe even a, a walled city or a town sometimes. So I'm wondering if there's if there's a scriptural basis for regarding the wilderness per se as something uh, beautiful and something to be preserved or conserved, as we say. I would not characterize the scriptural representation of wilderness as negative. The wilderness is often a frightening place because it's the place where humans are not in control. It's the place where you have to be led and often fed by God. Jeremiah looks back to the Exodus as God wooing Israel in the wilderness and also looks forward to God taking Israel back out to the wilderness to speak to their heart. Elijah, John, Jesus, Moses, all of them have to be driven out to the wilderness or find themselves in the wilderness in order to prepare for ministry. In the land of Israel, wilderness is never far away. Israel was a land of villages and small cities in the biblical period and largely even to this day. So wilderness was just literally just over the next hill. And Israelites knew the wilderness as essential. Every Israelite village was a village of both farmers and herdspeople, usually in the same family. The herding part of the family would take the flocks out into the wilderness for at least some significant part of the year. So I would say that wilderness, both in the Bible and in the culture that produced the Bible, wilderness and cultivated land are very much intertwined. Did you know that the first issue of the Living Church magazine came out in 1878? It invited a small group of Midwestern American readers to be active, informed Christians, influencing their local communities and encouraging the highest possible standards in church teaching, preaching, music, art. If you're not a subscriber, consider it. Subscription rates start at $9.95 a year for digital and about $5 an issue for a traditional magazine. You can subscribe for our next issue at livingchurch.org and just click the subscribe tab. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about the degrading aspects of technology, um, certainly on the ecosphere. And uh, things that spring to my mind are things like bulldozers. And um, you talk about, uh, and, and Wendell Berry talks about mountaintop removal and, and things like that, that have only, I mean, the scale of ecological degradation that has been, been made possible by technological advancements is storied at this point and much discussed. But what about technology, information technology, and things like Twitter and, you know, instant communication and uh, the internet itself? You quoted in scripture, culture and agriculture, you quoted Norman Wurzba talking about information technology and how it tends to alienate us from the world. 
um, and I think from each other. And there's an irony in that because it kind of holds itself out to us as bringing everything closer together and making us more knowledgeable. Is that the case? Are we... Is information technology on a personal level exacerbating the problem of ecological degradation? And is scripture the antidote for that? And if it is, how? So I would say that wisdom is probably the central intellectual value uh, as represented in the Bible. And T.S. Eliot, where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? I think that's how he puts it. That's a biblical, very biblical sentiment. The first things the humans do is eat from the tree of knowledge, and they get cheap knowledge. They knew that they were naked, but they were separated from intimacy with God, which is the source of wisdom. So I think that's a really crucial distinction. But I'm on a daily basis, I am probably more conscious of the small technologies that almost all of us use. And I'm fearful of the ways that they desensitize us to what is around us. I can't tell you how many hours a day I spend looking at a screen, but it's a lot. And I don't have a screen that I carry in my hand. And I deliberately don't have a screen that I carry in my hand because then I think I'd be past praying for. But it concerns me when I walk along the street and see almost everybody I pass looking at their palms rather than at their neighbors or at the trees, let alone entertaining their own thoughts. I see some of this amongst my own students at Divinity School, and I, and I have some concern about if one is not cautious, what that means in preparing for ministry, if one is more attuned to a screen than to people's faces or their tones of voice. And if you're constantly in climate-controlled environments in your house, in your car, in your office, what does climate change mean to you existentially? Those are real questions for me. Is scripture an, an, an antidote Potentially, um, but I think there's a big condition on this, and that would be if Scripture slows you down, if it opens your eyes to wonder, then yes, it is. But of course, that depends how you read. If you're trying just sort of to make traction through Scripture, I'm thinking of students, if you're reading it for information, then no, it's probably not an antidote. And if you're reading it, and if your teachers are helping you read it, to enter with an attitude of wonder and reverence into a vast, multi-dimensional world of story, then yes, I think it might be an antidote. I have in front of me William P. Brown's Sacred Sense, Discovering the Wonder of God's Word and World. It's a series of very short reflections, four to five pages, reading different passages of Scripture with an eye to wonder of different kinds. Um, and I think that kind of reading of Scriptures can be very helpful. And then, of course, there are, there are texts in which we hear, especially I think of the psalmists, the psalmists wonder, uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 104, some of 
the great poets amongst the prophets, Hosea chapter 2, cosmic vision of the world. Those things, I think, could be an antidote if we're willing to slow down and enter into them. Yes, I often think about the word that springs to my mind often in connection with the way Christians are invited to engage scripture is to marinate in it. And on that score, I've you know, I've been very formed by the recitation of the daily office. And I think the daily office, daily morning and evening prayer in the prayer book is one of Anglicanism's great gifts to the church Catholic. And reading scripture in that way, in a, in a sort of regular way, is formative. It certainly has been for me. And it, at its best, I think what it aims at is, is the, the reformation of our vision it offers us another way to look at the world from the vantage point of eternity, hopefully. Do you think that's right? No, I think that's absolutely right. It's, um, as you know, in the, in the monastic tradition, they speak of chewing scripture and beginning and ending your work day by chewing scripture, I think is exactly as you say, meant to be uh, a formative experience. Yes. I'd like to ask you about this, uh, the, the issue of ecological concern being, a, in point of fact, a bourgeois thing. And, I, and I'm thinking about things like solar panels. We, you know, we've, been, uh, we've been hoping and wanting to have solar panels here at our church, but we find that there's a big uh, regulatory framework. There's a lot of obstacles in the way, and it seems like that it's possible, but it's only possible if you have a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of leisure to devote to the enterprise of figuring out how to do it. Um, and the same is true, of course, for things like Teslas and shopping at Whole Foods. These things are all very expensive and only, you know, it seems like the rich, the world's rich can avail themselves of those kinds of things. So are the poor of the earth just relegated to, are, are they just trapped? Are the poor just written out of being able to do anything about, to shop for organic foods and the, the, the sorts of things that bourgeois people do when they want to do something about um, ecological problems? I'm not that hopeless. In what you've said, I think there are a couple of things I'll pull out of that. One is... I think you're pointing to the importance of the way we do business as being crucial for cultural change. So, for instance, I, I don't know about in your area, but I think that solar panels in a number of places have, in fact, become a lot more affordable than, than they were some years ago. I think that's due to the fact that more People who work in business are becoming concerned about these issues, not on the scale of the multinational corporation. I don't know how much hope I have for that, but a number of smaller local or regional businesses. I would also say local and regional food production has to be part of the picture. And the kind of large-scale agriculture that has made food in this country, as far as I know, the cheapest food in the world, the cost of that food is long-term destruction, destruction of the material base of life, our water, our soil, our clean air. So I think those costs 
need to be figured in when we think about what constitutes the poor. And the land itself is sometimes described as the new poor. And I think that's something that I think it's a powerful image we need to bear in mind. I would say that industrial agriculture keeps the poor poor, that farmers in this country and around the world are producing food, but do not necessarily have have access to food for their own families. They're producing for corporate markets. Farmer suicide, as you know, in India is extraordinarily high. Farmers are drinking the chemicals that they pour onto their land, and while their families starve or their children go into prostitution. So I would say the scale of farming is a hugely important thing to consider in this country and around the world. And the relationship between farms and markets, between communities and producers of food, preserving or restoring small-scale food production, which is many times more efficient per unit of land, is many times more efficient than industrial-scale agriculture and is compatible with preserving the health of the land. seems to me this is the way that we need to be thinking. I remember reading Wendell Berry say somewhere, I don't remember where it was, but I remember, and I think it was in the early 80s that he wrote this, he said that America does not have bad politics, but a bad way of life, and that our bad politics, insofar as they are bad, is uh, just a byproduct of a corrupting way of life. And similarly, I remember in seminary, I remember Miroslav Wolf telling a story about trying to illustrate the corrupting power of sin and how we're all trapped in it. And he talked about buying a banana. And he said, you know, you just want a banana, so you go and buy one, but you can't buy it without buying into a corrupting economic system and one that degrades the environment and so forth. And, and so the consumer is just sort of trapped by this when you just want to eat a banana. And you, uh, Dr. Davis, have a very edifying reflection in scripture, culture, and agriculture on the valorous woman from Proverbs 31. And what you said there put me in mind of what we used to call home economics. I don't think they teach that anymore in school, and more's the pity. Uh, but what I'm wondering is, are there ways that Christians can order our households such that we resist these corrupting ways of the, of the world, of our social order that we might otherwise be trapped in, and that we can bear witness to something better, to, to the way of wisdom? as it's held out to us in, in Scripture? They actually still do teach home economics, although I don't know if they use that term. I think it's a pretty good term. But um, I have a friend who teaches it, and one of the things that she teaches is the dynamics of the food system. So it's it's actually a much more complex social science than it was when I was learning how to make deviled eggs. And I think, I think it's a really good thing to be taught in middle school, as she does. So actually, I think that one of the ways we do need to affect, we're talking about affecting, and Wendell is talking about affecting, a fundamental cultural change. That has to start in grade school. 
middle school, high school, if, if people are not thinking along these ways before they get to college or when I meet them in seminary, for most, it's too late to have a fundamental change. So yes, I think that we are a culture of addiction, overconsumption, of obliviousness, of choosing the easy option, which, as we were just talking about, often appears to be the cheap option, but it's cheap in, in the worst sense. And I think that kind of repudiating those things as evil, as the work of the devil, the kinds of things that we are repudiating for ourselves and for others in baptismal vows. I think to a great extent, that is the kind of cultural change that has to happen in the church and in our faith communities and revaluing our lives and the life of other creatures, including the earth on which all our lives depend. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.